Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World, ko Alison Balance tēnei. This week marks 10 years since the Darfield earthquake in Canterbury. We're going to chart the shaky decade since with three seismologists from GNS Science. Anna Kaiser, Bill Fry and John Ristow are part of the team at GeoNet, which provides geological hazard information for New Zealand. GeoNet's become a household name. It's the friend we turn to when the ground starts shaking beneath our feet to find out how big the quake was, where it was and at what depth. And hard at work behind the scenes are Wellington-based duty seismologists like Anna, Bill and John. We'll be hearing their recollections and experiences of the big ones, and to set the scene, I asked them to cast their minds back to what our understanding of earthquakes was and where they were likely to happen 11 years ago, before Darfield. Here's John. We wouldn't have really expected a major earthquake in Canterbury. Um, If anything, the uh, big thing we would have expected would have been an earthquake along the west coast of the South Island with with the Alpine Fault. Well, Canterbury was a a somewhat lower seismic hazard region of New Zealand, but we are still in New Zealand, so there's always a risk of earthquakes anywhere in the country. Back in 2009, you might recall, there was a large earthquake in Dusky Sound. And I just come to the country, just started earthquake duty. So it meant that one week out of every six or so, we would um, be on call 24-7 to respond to earthquakes. And um, very soon after I started doing that, we had a a large earthquake, a 7.8 earthquake in the far south of New Zealand. And I, I remember after that happened, the director of Geonet coming up to me and saying, great job, thanks for all the hard work. Take a deep breath and relax now because that's a a once-in-a-lifetime sort of event or once-in-a-career sort of event. And as you know, after the the last 10 years we've had, it's not really a a once-in-a-career sort of event. We've been having event after event after event. And I think the one thing you learn from that is to expect the unexpected, to expect big earthquakes anywhere in New Zealand. We really are the shaky isles here in New Zealand. We live in a very tectonically active part of the world, and our history books are full of big earthquakes. The largest on record, but certainly not the largest ever, was the magnitude 8.2 Wairarapa earthquake of 1855. Much of current downtown Wellington, as well as State Highway 2 from Wellington to the Hutt Valley, became usable real estate only after it was uplifted in that jolt. The magnitude 7.8 quake in Murchison in 1929 was closely followed by our deadliest earthquake, with 256 deaths. That was the magnitude 7.8 Hawke's Bay earthquake of 1931. 
I'll just pause here to clarify for a second that the word magnitude can mean slightly different things depending on which definition you're using. Media like me tend to use Richter or local magnitude. Seismologists prefer moment magnitude. And there are plenty of others. So, for example, 6.2 and 6.3 are both correct magnitudes for the Christchurch earthquake. I know, it had me scratching my head as well. Anyway, we'll fast forward past the magnitude 7.1 in Angahua earthquake of 1968 and skip several big fjordland shakes to get to this week's anniversary. At 4.35am on the 4th of September 2010, Canterbury was rudely woken by a magnitude 7.1 earthquake, which would become known as the Darfield quake. I was actually on earthquake duty, so I got the page at 4.30 in the morning. But at that time, our pagers would start to beep if there was strong shaking somewhere, but it didn't really tell you where or how big the shaking was. So I didn't know anything until I actually got out of bed and got on the computer. I was at home in Wellington, and I can remember feeling the earthquake and and feeling such a long shake in the earthquake and thinking, I bet that's the Alpine Fault. I was in Wellington and I did wake up. I remember it was in the early hours of the morning and I thought, ooh, that's far away, but that is that feels quite big. You know, what is that? As a seismologist, you sort of want to find out a bit more and jump on the GNH pages to look at some of the data. And, um, and it was clear, you know, the South Island stations, the seismic stations were lighting up and we knew we had something quite large on our hands. In fact, I remember when Darfield happened, and we used to have this map that would show up on our on our website, where the stations would light up with different colors and sizes as to how strong the shaking was. And when I first saw this map indicating everything was happening in Canterbury around Christchurch, my first thought was, that can't be right. But of course, it was. <laughs> It was a magnitude 7.1 earthquake, Canterbury Plains, about 40 kilometers west of Christchurch. And the main fault that ruptured was uh, one that we named the Greendale Fault, uh, which is about a 30 kilometer long fault with a surface rupture. But there were actually at least about six different fault segments that were involved in that rupture. And the earthquake did not actually start on the Greendale Fault, but rather on a fault that was about four kilometers to the north of it. It was in a fault that was buried in the Canterbury Plains. So active faults are very difficult to map if they don't have a lot of um, movement on them. So if they, if they don't commonly have earthquakes that displace, especially in a vertical sense, that don't uplift some of the ground, then they can be buried by sediments, um, such as this fault, where it's um, if you were to just take a, a stroll across the plains prior to the Darfield earthquake, you would have walked straight over it, it would have felt flat, and it wouldn't have been something that you would have mapped with a traditional paleoseismology method going out in the field looking for offset terraces or some sort of offset um, geomorphic feature that tells you there's a, a fault there. It was a rupture of the Greendale Fault primarily, which was a big strike-slip fault that was buried beneath those sediments. But it actually started on a little subsidiary fault just, just north of the rupture. Um, it was a complex rupture, then starting on a, on a smaller fault, and then the Greendale Fault had what we call a bilateral rupture, which meant the, the um, rupture propagated out to the east and to the west um, from the centre of the fault. I'm um, sending also, you know, some of the energy eastwards towards Christchurch. 
Well, that fault actually hadn't been ruptured for probably about 18 to 20,000 years. I mean, our active fault database that we have for faults all around New Zealand, you know, there's probably somewhere in the order of 900 or 1,000 faults or something like that that we have in our active fault database. But those are only the faults that, um, that we know about that we can either see on the surface and we can map them or ones that we just happen to catch, you know, on some sort of subsurface mapping projects. But there are probably many, many faults out there that we don't know about. As you know, it happened in a what we would call a very low strain rate area. This means it's a place um, that as the, the continental plates come together and store up energy that's released in later earthquakes, it's a place where this happens very slowly. So it means earthquakes there are less frequent than they might be in other parts of the country where you get higher strain rates or more frequent earthquakes. So the Darfield earthquake happened in this area that has fewer earthquakes than most places in New Zealand, a bit out of the blue. And I remember thinking afterward and having a lot of conversations with my colleagues about dodging a bullet, how it had been a large earthquake in a place we weren't really expecting the next big earthquake to be and getting through without any uh, serious fatalities or um, serious damage. We knew at the time, you know, that for an earthquake like this, we'd have an aftershock sequence that would go on for months and even for years. Uh, this is what we said right from the start. So after the original Darfield earthquake, there was this belief that the earthquakes were going to taper off. There, there was the misbelief, the misconception that they would taper off in magnitude, first of all, which we know isn't the case. They taper off in frequency. So the time between the earthquakes um, tends to get longer and longer. You might recall um, a long time after the original um, September 2010 event, there was the um, the Valentine's Day earthquake that, that shook Central Christchurch. And I remember going down to Christchurch after that earthquake and talking to a lot of people that said, you know, I really thought that this stuff was over. I really thought we were on the downhill slide of it. And unfortunately, we have to understand that in situations like these, the tail of the aftershock sequences is, is quite long-lived. And in Canterbury, it was um, early on, particularly, it was very punchy. We had clusters of big earthquakes that happened for a long time. So, so it really did help us take a step back and start to think of these things in terms of a, a process that affects a large swath of land over a long time window a large earthquake, it changes the stresses in the crust or the surrounding crust. The sort of the bigger the event, the the wider the region, if you like, um, affected in this way. So it's obviously very uh, very normal to see aftershocks and some you know, often quite considerably sized aftershocks after after a very large event that can be destructive in themselves. And of course that's what we did see, you know, following Darfield when the sequence migrated eastwards. Just after midday on the 22nd of February 2011, a magnitude 6.3 earthquake struck Christchurch, resulting in 185 deaths. RNZ reporter Bridget Mills was recording an interview at the time. Oh, there's a big earthquake. Oh, shit. Are you still there? Are you still there? Are you still there? I lost you. Are you still there? I lost you. Shit. I've lost you. Shit. I've lost you. I'm so sorry about that. I'm going to have to go. I'm so sorry. Okay.
I was on duty for that particular day as well. I, I remember it very vividly after I said we had thought we had dodged a bullet with a Darfield September 2010 earthquake. When that happened, we knew we hadn't dodged the bullet. So we, we knew that ground motions in Christchurch were very, very strong. We knew there was a, a potential for catastrophic damage. And yes, it's absolutely part of the sequence. In my mind, it's genetically linked. So the Christchurch earthquake was most likely brought forward because of the Darfield earthquake. As far as the magnitude of that earthquake goes, it was fairly moderate, you know, a 6.2. So that's not one you would expect to feel over, over a huge area. But, of course, it had very destructive effects because of its proximity to the city, like right on the outer suburbs of Christchurch. And then all of the energy that was released from that earthquake just happened to be directed right at the city. We spent a long time trying to understand what caused the the strong ground motions in Christchurch after that. And we wanted to understand this from the perspective of saying, will this um, behavior happen again in future earthquakes? And what we we found out, there are a few things that contributed to that. Certainly, there's a a directivity effect that that made the the ground motions in Central Christchurch so strong. What directivity is, it's something like a snowplow building up energy in front of it. So as the earth was breaking, um, it was it was breaking forward as the waves were, were traveling forward as well. So they just kind of piled up. There's also something called a buried thrust. So the, the type of earthquake it is, is called a thrust earthquake in which one plate or one side moves upward compared to the other side. And when we have a buried thrust, we've long known that you have large ground motions from this buried thrust. So when the earthquake stops just shy of the surface, then it causes this effect where we have elevated ground motions. Maybe it's the case that this happened because of Banks Peninsula and some sort of structural control or the geologic nature of Banks Peninsula. Maybe it didn't. There's also a a site effect. So it's something local to the land in Christchurch that possibly made the vertical motions um, so great. And this was a bit of a um, a change in tack in our thinking around seismic hazard before that. And even now, there's a lot of consideration given to horizontal ground motions. So ground motions that go parallel to the surface of the ground. And this was really a case where we saw these large vertical ground motions, up and down ground motions, um, that aren't really um, accounted for in a lot of our hazard and our, um, our building construction. The Christchurch earthquake was initiated by an unknown fault. There was widespread liquefaction. Christchurch had been known uh, beforehand that it was susceptible to liquefaction. Um, you know, there were maps that had been done prior to the earthquakes that showed areas around Christchurch where liquefaction could have been a problem. But it was kind of built into our seismic hazard models, but it wasn't something we really anticipated that would happen. The Canterbury earthquake sequence starting with Darfield and including a number of large events in Christchurch, lasted several years, with more than 11,000 aftershocks. I'm Alison Balance, and in this Our Changing World special, we are marking a decade of earthquakes in New Zealand, beginning with the September 2010 Darfield quake. Next up, the magnitude 6.5 Cook Strait or Seddon earthquake on the 21st of July 2013, and the 6.6 Grasmere earthquake on the 16th of August, 2013. I was actually on duty for that earthquake sequence, and it started off with a, a 5.8, <laughs> which is, for Wellington, that hadn't experienced ground shaking um, that strong in quite some time. So it did cause quite a stir. I mean, there wasn't a significant amount of damage from that first um, sort of wake-up call, if you like. 
but it did cause quite a stir and quite a lot of interest. Um, and then, of course, throughout that weekend, we had another 5.7. And then on the Sunday afternoon, I think I was in the office and I was just about to pack up and get ready to go home thinking, I think I'm done for the day. Um, and then we had a, a magnitude 6.6, which was clearly quite a large earthquake with a, um, you know, a, quite a distinctive sort of rolling motion because I was in a place located on quite deep soil. We had our daughter who was about six months at the time and she was asleep upstairs and I happened to be upstairs. My wife was downstairs. And then when the shaking, when it started happening, you know, when the house was lurching around, you know, I quickly ran over to get her um, just as my wife is running up the stairs yelling to me, go get her, go get her. <laughs> um, and then the second one, it was a Friday afternoon and I was at GNS at the time. And it was my last day before I was going to be going on annual leave for, uh, to Canada for about a month. And so instead of, you know, being able to get out of the office, you know, and start going on annual leave, ended up, you know, working late and working all weekend on that. <laughs> the 5.8, the 5.7, they first started right quite in centrally in the middle of, of Cook Strait. And in this region, we have seen this sort of swarm-like behaviour before. So that's where you start to get, um, you know, earthquakes of a similar magnitude happening. Those earthquakes, we would consider them as what we would call an earthquake doublet which is two earthquakes that have similar magnitudes and source properties, and they occur close together in both time and location. In Cook Strait, it was immediately apparent that those were close by, that we were feeling the effects of that in Wellington and and feeling the effects of that very strongly. And there was a concern, what what if they migrate northward? What if something happens and and it triggers an earthquake right under our feet? These were the first earthquakes of that size, you know, about magnitude six and a half or larger, to have a major impact on the Wellington region since the 1942 earthquakes in the Wairapa, which were uh, 6.9 and 6.8. And so since then, we, of course, have all the modern seismic instruments that we have deployed, including there's many what we refer to as strong motion seismometers, which measure really strong ground shaking. And those have been installed in buildings all around the Wellington CBD and other parts of the Wellington region. And so these earthquakes gave a very valuable data set of this very strong shaking and how the buildings will react to the shaking and how they'll withstand it. Wellington got off lightly, mostly because the earthquakes didn't cross Cook Strait. We're not certain exactly what happened. There are some theories about why um, you might or might not get earthquakes migrating across Cook Strait. Perhaps there's a structural or a geologic control, and perhaps it was just a a matter of chance with uh, randomness of earthquakes. It's something I would call a stochastic process. So it's something that we can't predict. We, we can give some likelihood function or we, we can explain the statistics of how it might work and say that if, if you looked for long enough over a, a large enough spatial window, you would see a, a pattern that you might be able to say looks something like a, a typical curve and a typical distribution. But if you look in a small scale, if you just look at an event or a 10-year window or something, we don't know where along that spectrum of behavior the next big event's going to lie. The next big event would turn out to lie halfway between Canterbury and Cook Strait. Just after midnight on the 14th of November 2016, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake struck the Kaikoura region. So our daughter was you know, almost four years old at the time, and I remember she had woke up at about 11.30, so about a half hour before the earthquake happened, put her back to bed, and then before I fell asleep, I felt the first quick jolt of it. 
And then things kind of started to build up from there. So at first, with the first jolt, it's like, you know, is that just a small earthquake nearby? And then everything kind of starts to build and the shaking getting stronger and stronger. And, you know, we jumped out of bed, grabbed our daughter, rode the earthquake out. Uh, we actually lost power in um, our area for that one. Um, so everybody, you know, in the neighborhood is outside in the dark, you know, wondering what's going on. I had to immediately get ready to go to GNS, and that's something that for people like me who have to run off, you know, to deal with emergencies like this, you know, you kind of feel that, you know, sort of spouses and partners don't get enough credit for being there in the background and taking care of families and households. So I remember in great detail the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake. It happened at night. My immediate response was to run to my my child's bedroom and and make sure that everything was okay and try to understand um, from the information, the data I could get on my phone from my, my child's bedroom where exactly it was. And it was immediately obvious when um, we started seeing data from that um, that it was farther south. It wasn't happening um, right under right under Wellington. And that gave me the, the confidence to get my in-laws in to look after my child. So I, I was freed up to go to the, um, the NCNC response center in the Beehive and, um, and try to, to bridge the gap between the science that was going on in our offices and the, um, the decision-making and the, the science advice that we needed to get out to the central government and the regional councils. So you have two kinds of waves that come out of an earthquake, ones that travel underground and up to the surface, and then once they get to the surface, they travel along the surface. So we refer to them as body waves and surface waves. The surface waves are the ones that cause all the big, long shaking, and that's what we would have felt in Wellington. But if you were right there at the epicenter, you, you may not have felt those surface waves, or at least not very strongly. So you might have actually had a much different experience if you were very close to the epicenter. In Kaikoura and in, in Canterbury, we had some um, instruments that were, you know, almost right on top of the fault. So that was reflected in, you know, the very high ground motions that we recorded. I think the um, Canterbury sequence broke the record for the highest acceleration recorded in New Zealand in the Darfield earthquake, and then it was broken again in the Christchurch earthquake. <laughs> and then in Kaikoura, we, we again saw um, ground motions that exceeded 1G, which is the acceleration due to gravity. I've learned my lesson being in New Zealand long enough and seeing enough earthquakes to not expect uh, large earthquakes to be simple. So I think that every big earthquake we have, we take a step back and we learn something from it. There is something complicated in, it, it seems, every, every large earthquake we have. Yeah, so this one, you know, ruptured over around about 180 kilometres um, in total, but jumped over, um, you know, 20 plus faults, which is you know, globally unprecedented, you know, the earthquake's taken place in modern times where we can really see that complexity. We've got all of these different sophisticated data sets that we can look at. And I guess when things are settled down and you look at it from a scientific perspective, I mean, it is quite fascinating how it does jump across these different faults. Um, And, you know, it started off obviously in the south and the fault sort of broke sequentially moving north with the bulk of the energy actually released in the northern part of the rupture around the, the Kikirini Fault, which is um, in, in Marlborough. The Kaikoura earthquake, it involved so many different things, didn't it? We had landslide damage, we had liquefaction, shaking damage, building damage, you know, lost homes, we had tsunami, potential for tsunami. We had ground surface rupture. So from a science point of view, all of these different phenomenon. It was a you know, broad, wide response that we had to mount with a, you know, standing up many different teams across junior science in our university um, and other research partners um, to really get to the bottom of, of 
what had happened and to provide information people could use to sort of rebuild and recover um, from the earthquake. It ruptured across what we would call two very distinct tectonic domains, further south along the um, east coast of the South Island, where the earthquake started. It's basically just faults that are in the uh, crust of the earthquake. So the, so the earthquakes tend to be quite shallow. They're rupturing through the um, crust of the earth. But then as you get further north, you get into what we call the subduction zone. So beneath the North Island and the top of the South Island, um, you have the Pacific Plate, which is pushing, or what we call subducting, beneath the Australian Plate. And so this, so the Kaikoura earthquake actually went across those two different, those two distinct tectonic domains, which is something that typically doesn't happen. With the Kaikoura earthquake, my immediate thought was the subduction zone is gone. I thought it had been a big Hikurangi subduction zone earthquake, um, which in fact it it wasn't exactly that. So I think a, a lot of people in the global community would say, yes, something that is the subduction zone or looks like the subduction zone um, went in that earthquake in in somewhat of a traditional way um, in a in a process that happened over a few minutes. Some people uh, in New Zealand domestically would also say that. Other people would say that most of the groundbreaking we had in that earthquake happened on the, the shallow crustal faults. So this is a – it's an active area of research and it's a fascinating area of research because it's starting to tell us something about how you can get communication or interaction of these biggest faults, the subduction zone faults and the overlying crustal faults. So what have we learned from all this recent seismic activity? An event like Darfield is a very rare type of earthquake. Um, again, you know, that fault hadn't ruptured in uh, 18, 20,000 years. And then, um, you know, you have other ones like Kaikoura, which are also, you know, 10,000, 20,000 year events. However, when you have as many active faults as we have in New Zealand, they may have long recurrence intervals, which means a long time before they have earthquakes on them, but you get enough of them together, and there's always a good chance one fault somewhere is going to rupture. You just don't know. It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. Your odds of winning are pretty low, but if enough people buy lottery tickets, there's a good chance somebody's going to win. We need to treat every area in New Zealand as a potentially hazardous area, and we need to make sure that we have our precautions in place. We need to have our um, earthquake measures, our, our earthquake plans, our, our provisions, everything that the um, National Emergency Management Administration tells us to do, we need to do that. Um, I've also learned that um, there, there are interactions between faults at great distances that maybe right now we can't explain, but I think science will take us there in the future. So I think um, it's, a, it's a very exciting time because we're starting to see um, with a, a greater ability to measure the earth, with more dense instrumentation, with different types of instrumentation, I think we're starting to see tantalizing clues to physical processes that might explain how this sort of thing happens. Our um, network of what we would call strong motion um, sensors has increased. These are the things that we use um, typically to say stuff about um, uh, about earthquakes from an engineering perspective, what, what we want to know about um, strong shaking and damaging shaking. Our weak motion instrumentation has improved. These are the, the, the instruments that measure the velocity of the ground. And this tells us something about the source physics, our ability to measure the, the, the displacement of the ground. So GPS type sensors, that's improved as well. And that's starting to tell us something about longer term processes. So one very exciting thing that's happened in seismology and earthquake science is we're starting to bridge those very discrete fast 
processes like fast earthquakes with the very, very slow processes like uh, like tectonic plates moving together. We're really starting to bridge the gap between those, and now we realize it's not just one or the other. There's a full spectrum of deformation or behavior that lies between those two processes, one that might happen over tens of thousands of years and one that might happen over tens of seconds. And that's what um, a lot of this instrumentation is allowing us to see. We're also getting better at instrumenting um, the oceans to see if the, the big earthquakes have generated tsunami as well. Well, I guess one of the things that uh, we learned, of course, is to kind of expect the unexpected. I've been here in New Zealand since November 2006, and you know, always the big thought was always the Alpine Fault, preparing for a big earthquake on the Alpine Fault. The typical recurrence interval, or the average time between major earthquakes in the Alpine Fault is about 320 years, and the last earthquake on the Alpine Fault was in 1717, so a little over 300 years ago. Since I've been here, we've had two magnitude 7.8 earthquakes, if you include the one in uh, Fiordland in 2009, a couple other magnitude 7s, many magnitude 6s, none of them have involved the Alpine Fault. So expect earthquakes can happen anywhere. That's what the Canterbury earthquakes really taught us. And that, you know, you have to be prepared for earthquakes no matter where you are, even if you're in Auckland or Northland, where we typically don't get big earthquakes, it could still happen. We're in a very fortunate situation in New Zealand where we have very tight relationships between science and response, both at the the central government and the the distributed regional government level. And I think these very close relationships provide a pathway so we we can do the science, we can get some sort of understanding, we can push that out, and we can also pull back um, questions, information from the people affected in these events, and we can increase our understanding of the story from that. So it's a a two-way flow of of science and information. And I think one thing we've learned is that that two-way flow of information is very useful in responses, and we're getting better at it all the time. And I think now in modern times, you know, due to our you know, increasing modern monitoring networks, we really get to see this picture of, of an, an earthquake. So whereas before we might have had quite a fuzzy, sort of blurry picture from a distance, we're starting to see these as sort of, you know, a close-up movie of what's unfolding in time, and we can reconstruct that after the event um, to provide more information. I think there's still, there's still a ways to go. In the future, we're going to have even more sophisticated monitoring where we will be you know, able to see really in real time and in much more detail what's happened. It's been a very exciting decade to be a seismologist, I have to say. To tell you the truth, people ask me all the time, um, so did you, were you excited by that last earthquake? And I am, I'm no longer excited by any earthquakes. I would prefer it to be a very um, quiescent period where we don't get any more earthquakes in the foreseeable future in my lifetime, really. Thanks, Bill. That was Bill Fry. We also heard from Anna Kaiser and John Ristow. They are all seismologists for GeoNet at GNS Science. Over the next few weeks, I'll bring you more stories about earthquake science, covering everything from engineering to human behaviour. But in the meantime, you can find links to previous Our Changing World stories featuring various quake-related stuff on the Our Changing World webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. While you're there please sign up for our free weekly email newsletter. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'm back at the same time next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Kia Pai Topo. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.